Welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. My name is Sean Delaney. I'm a teacher and teacher educator, and this is episode 416 of Inside Education. You can download all previous episodes by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on podcasts. Follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. And you can write to me with comments or suggestions by email to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is now available as an audiobook narrated by me. It's intended to be a support to anyone in the first few years of their teaching career. Sustainability is a word that is used a lot in education these days. Among the sustainable development goals of the United Nations is Goal 4, an aspiration for inclusive education to enable upward social mobility and end poverty. That is in addition to goals related to health and well-being, responsible consumption and production, and sustainable cities and communities. The Irish Department of Education is holding a public consultation during 2021 to inform a strategy on education for sustainability development up to the year 2030. My guest on the programme this week brings a life full of insights to this topic through his expertise in Indigenous education. Professor Gregory Cajete is a Native American educator at the University of New Mexico. He is the recipient of multiple fellowships and academic distinctions and he designs culturally responsive curricula based on Native American understanding of the nature of nature to cater for the specific needs and learning styles of Native American students. Among the books he has authored are Look to the Mountain, An Ecology of Indigenous Education and A People's Ecology, Explorations in Sustainable Living. You'll really like this episode if you are open to alternative forms of education. It will provide insights into what education might be if we took relationality more seriously and were genuinely interested in developing each person's potential. If you like this episode, you'll most likely enjoy episodes 367 and 368 in which I discuss holistic education with John P. Miller. And indeed it was he who suggested that I interview Professor Greg Kekete. When I spoke to Professor Greg Kekete recently, I began by asking him to tell me about his own Indigenous background. I'm from Santa Clara Pueblo. My tribe is called Tewa, T-E-W-A. And uh, we are uh, one of six uh, Tewa communities uh, residing north of uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. We're most, most famous for starting a revolt in 1680 against the Spanish uh, to ensure our sovereignty, you know, as uh, indigenous communities, which we were able to to win. And uh, so we have a different history than other tribes in the United States because we were, uh, we made a treaty with the Spanish colonial government. And then later on, that was honored by the Mexican government. And then in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the United States was, uh, was obliged to also honor that aspect of the treaty. Interestingly enough, we were considered citizens of uh, both the Spanish and, and Mexican colonial authorities and uh, were able to retain our original uh, land grants, although they were quite, quite uh, shrunken, but nonetheless, we were not removed from our communities such as uh, other tribes uh, experienced. 
So that makes us uh, very different. Uh, as a result, we were able to hold on to our traditions, you know, our, our dances, our language, uh, even, uh, you know, through my generation. And uh, in terms of numbers, how would your, the numbers in your tribe compare to numbers in other Native American tribes? Well, at, at, at one time we were, you know, quite numerous, but I think uh, here in New Mexico, we have the Navajo tribe, which is the largest tribe in New Mexico. I think they're close to 300,000 plus. And I think the second largest is the uh, Cherokee, which are around 280,000. My tribe actually is quite small. Uh, those, those six table communities comprise of, uh, about 6,000. And then we also have another group of Tewas who live with the Hopis, and they are about another uh, 3,000. So uh, less than 10,000 altogether in terms of uh, Tewa-speaking people. And what was your own experience of education growing up? I was the first generation to actually go to public school. Uh, in my parents' and grandparents' generation, uh, their schooling was, was primarily through uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, and, uh, you know, really uh, only went up to the sixth, sixth grade. So I was the first in my generation really to experience a public school uh, experience, which was just, uh, the school was located just off the reservation. So, uh, so I was able to, to, to just walk to school from, from my community, my home. So that was a, that was a distinct break because before kids were actually uh, taken to uh, the boarding schools, which we had in uh, Santa Fe and also in Albuquerque. Uh, and these were Bureau of Indian Affairs. They were federal boarding schools. And uh, their curriculum was primarily vocational, uh, mostly uh, agricultural. Uh, some tailoring, uh, you know, and, and those kinds of things, household kinds of, of skills. Um, and uh, very, very minimal, very basic, uh, you know, academic curriculum. Uh, and so, was that a big decision for your parents to send you to the local public school? Uh, I, I think it was uh, uh, not a big decision because they felt that the public school was, was giving a better education than they had experienced in the boarding schools. And how does your education compare to the educational experience of indigenous groups in the United States today? I think, I think it's comparable, uh, but I was, uh, you know, there's, there's not too many Native people that go on for their doctoral, their doctoral degrees, uh, uh, although there are more now uh, than ever before. Uh, but in my day, I was kind of like the second generation where more Native people went for their uh, college, uh, graduate, uh, PhD degrees, and then uh, the current generation, uh, which would be the generation of my students, you know, are, are more likely, you know, to, to go to, to uh, college. Um, you know, it's also encouraged, you know, on the part of tribes, you know, to get uh, as many of their members into college as possible. But that being said, there are still many struggles for Native uh, people uh, going to uh, college and university, many, uh, you know, maybe go for the first year and then, then drop out. Others, uh, because of family obligations, 
go to work right after high school. So the numbers are not uh, anywhere comparable, let's say, to other uh, minority groups in the United States in terms of uh, attendance in college. It's still, it still lags far behind. Although there are more, uh, as I said, in my generation and then uh, the current generation uh, going to, to get their doctoral or, or at least their graduate degrees or their, or their bachelor's degrees in various colleges and universities. Back in the, the early, well, the, the mid-1970s, we also formed uh, what's called a tribal college union. And so many tribes uh, entered into agreements uh, to create uh, what we, we call tribal colleges. And uh, there are, I think, more than 36 now, about 36 tribal colleges in the United States. And these are like the, uh, the first and second year of college. Uh, they prepare the students, you know, to go on to college, or they give uh, a variety of different kinds of uh, two-year degrees. Uh, a few are now giving bachelor's and master's as well. Uh, so there's been some advancement in, um, in that aspect, uh, you know, in the tribal college movement in the United States. So you have made Indigenous education your, your, your field of study, your life's work in many ways. And in, yes. how, how do you define Indigenous education? Well, uh, there's really two ways, uh, two ways. Actually, there's two, two schools in this, in this context, uh, you know, and, and uh, I want to sort of make that, that distinction clear. When one says, uh, for instance, here in the United States, American Indian education, uh, many times you're referring to the education that was essentially mediated by the federal government and later on by the states. And, and this is really native people going to Western public schools or Western academic uh, institutions. And so many times that's referred to as American Indian education. Uh, it, is, uh, it is really the result of policy, of treaties, of agreements between the United States and various tribes or uh, just uh, general policy on the part of uh, the Department of Interior, which handles uh, American Indian education. Uh, it includes the creation of uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs schools and also uh, what we would call the parochial schools. These are the schools uh, run by various uh, Christian uh, denominations, of which there are also many. So that has a history, uh, and that history really began in, oh, I would say the early 1700s when uh, some of the, the tribes on the east coast of the United States, as a part of uh, treaties that were being made between the colonial uh, uh, governments at that time, uh, or the colonies at that time, that uh, education was a part of that agreement or those agreements. And so some, um, some tribes sent their young men, essentially, to uh, schools like Harvard and Dartmouth. Uh, the, you know, these schools actually began as schools that natives attended. And so American Indian education goes that far back. And then, um, you know, as, 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 uh, Westward expansion happened in the United States. Uh, more and more tribes, you know, um, created uh, treaties, you know, with the United States that included education as a part of it. But it was a, 
it was an education of assimilation. It, it didn't have anything to do with traditional forms of native education whatsoever. It was really assimilate and, and you know, we'll provide you with the, uh, with the, uh, with the, the resources to do so. Although those resources were always uh, inadequate and, and the schools and, and the education was marginal. You know, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the history of American Indian education began then in the 1700s. Uh, and then it evolved, of course, uh, as the country evolved uh, uh, to include uh, eventually the creation of the uh, boarding schools, which was really uh, kind of a quasi-military uh, academy to which Indians were forced to attend many times. Uh, it was created by uh, Charles Pratt as a result of his work with uh, Indians that had been imprisoned in Florida, Fort Mary in Florida. And uh, they began to, in a sense, re, as they called it, rehabilitate uh, Native people, you know, towards Western ways and Western education. So um, that's where the uh, federal system then began to, to resource uh, what we call the boarding schools. And many boarding schools were established throughout the United States, uh, starting with Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Chima Chimawa Indian School in Washington, uh, not Washington, but Oregon. And uh, several others, you know, several schools in Santa Fe, uh, Albuquerque, here in the Southwest, uh, Sherman Indian School in uh, California, and several others. So there was a whole complex of native uh, school, uh, federally, federally run schools that Indian students were obliged to attend. Uh, and that was a period of almost uh, more than 100 years, though that system really was viable. And then finally, native students were then um, allowed to, as, as native students moved into cities, uh, they were allowed to go to public schools. What I'm saying is that there's a huge history and that many times is what people study when they uh, go uh, to study American Indian education. What I'm saying is that that's only part of the story, that it does not include traditional forms of education, which all tribes had, and which in many ways were usurped or interrupted by this American Indian education that I just mentioned, this system. And in many ways, more about the traditional education. Well, so, so the traditional education was really the ways in which young people were brought up uh, and taught by many members in a uh, indigenous community, teaching language, teaching uh, customs, traditions, uh, teaching uh, survival skills. You know, within uh, environments. And so this would be called traditional education and it included the stories, it included the histories, it included the, 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 uh, the customs uh, of, of the people. And of course, much of this kind of education was interrupted by the American Indian education because in, in some tribes, uh, children were just basically forced to go to these schools. Uh, they didn't have a choice, parents did not have a choice to send them to these schools. They were forced to go to the school. So of course, it was uh, an attempt to break the culture down to, to, to eventually to erase it and to replace it with uh, a Western view of education. And so that, that was really the intent of, of that education system. 
Charles Pratt, who started uh, Carlisle Indian School, uh, framed it, uh, kill the Indian, save the man. Kill the Indian, save the man. And, and that was his, uh, his credo, his motto, and in terms of his philosophy and also his approach to American Indian education. Uh, of course, tribes, you know, maintained, uh, with, especially within families, uh, traditional forms of education. And this was especially so with uh, many of the tribes here in the Southwest, the Pueblos included. That was one of the reasons uh, why I think we continue to, you know, practice our traditions, uh, you know, have, have, uh, have uh, many language speakers, although we are also experiencing language loss, you know, as, as we speak. But uh, nonetheless, we were able to, to maintain, you know, uh, at least a semblance of traditional education within the home and community. Uh, many times in secret, many times uh, out, of the, out of sight of the um, Western uh, educators uh, or Christian educators or out of the sight of the eyes of the government uh, officials. You know, so many times this was done you know, quietly and uh, secretly. But nonetheless, uh, it, it, is, it, is, uh, it is a very viable, very amazing form of education predicated on uh, relationality, developing relationship to the place within which we live, not only with each other in your community, but with all living things that give you life in that community, its plants, its animals, its waters, its all things that, that give life. And so that's a relational philosophy that is held in common by indigenous people. It's an indigenous worldview, which focuses on the question, how am I related to this? Rather than the, the, the Western question, which is, what is this? So big difference in philosophies, you know, in, in that context. So that's why I'm saying there are two forms of native education. You know, one is called American Indian education, has the history I just told you, but there is one that is much older and, and uh, in, in many ways much more ecologically sound and also philosophically elegant that indigenous peoples have always had. And that's what I concentrate on. You know, although I'm very, very, very vested, very well knowledgeable about the American Indian education system and, and especially its, its, its many issues uh, and, and uh, you know, trying to get Native people through that system. But I also became interested um, in our traditional forms of Indigenous education. And, and that's what I largely write about uh, even today. And, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, because I think we could learn a lot from that. But before we even go into this philosophical underpinnings of it, to, to what extent is there an infrastructure now for the traditional Indigenous education, as opposed to uh, Native Americans attending regular public schools? Well, I think in, in a lot of tribes, uh, the traditional uh, infrastructure essentially uh, comes uh, in the form of uh, young people, well, all the whole, whole community participating in the ceremonies of a community, uh, the traditional ceremonies of the community. And that's where the, the traditional knowledge and also the traditional forms of education are practiced and imparted. And I said largely because of, um, because of the policies of the U.S. government, a lot of that 
essentially went underground for a period of time, uh, really until the 1970s, uh, when um, through policy, the federal government uh, adopted uh, an American Indian Religious Freedom Act, which uh, then guaranteed the right of Native people to, to practice their own forms of religion, their own forms of uh, ceremonial practice. And that's where, uh, you know, that, that infrastructure started to begin to develop again you know, based on um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of the work that uh, and many people had done, you know, to keep those traditions, those customs, uh, to keep the language alive, all of those kinds of things then begin to be able to be practiced in the open rather than uh, in secret. So th that's the infrastructure. And uh, today, many tribes are uh, attempting to create uh, their own forms of education that integrate Western with indigenous uh, knowledge, indigenous perspectives. Uh, I think those. this is the, the current movement underway. There are a lot of challenges to this because uh, what I called American Indian education is a very, very specific kind of uh, Westernization of in American Indian people, a form of education that has been, uh, as I said, it has its own history. And it tends to be the the the, um, the one that has been um, institutionalized, uh, whereas the indigenous forms of education um, tend to be practiced within the community or within certain families. And uh, some tribes are now forming what they call community schools, in which they they've taken control of of their uh, at least elementary school level education and have begun to reintroduce language, culture, tradition uh, into the uh, school Western school curriculum. So this is an experiment that's underway as we speak, and uh, hopefully you know it's going to give some some new perspectives to uh, Native people as as they move forward in in their educational journeys. So you've talked about the relational nature of Indigenous education. What are the other philosophical underpinnings or, you know, how, how would you broaden out the philosophy of Indigenous education, the traditional form? Let's, let's take a look at it from the standpoint of worldview. In a, in a worldview, you have axiology, you have epistemology, you have... Um, a logic, you know, the, the reasoning that you use. So for an in Indigenous peoples, uh, the epistemology, how you come to know what you know, would be the best way to describe an epistemology, uh, is through the form of stories, through the form of ceremony, through the form of community, you know, participation in community, lots of uh, rhythm and dance, you know, in the context of, of learning that. So you learn through dance, you learn through through, through, you know, sustainable community practices, all of those kinds of things. So that's the epistemology. Uh, the axiology, which is what is the focus, uh, is that question, how am I related to this? It's, it's relational. Uh, it's about establishing a, a balanced relationship with all of your environment that includes not only humans, but also other than human entities, you know, the, the uh, one would call them the plants, the animals, you know, the waters, the air. Uh, of your place, the place in which you live. It's a very place-based uh, worldview. So that, that's what makes for the diversity of indigenous expressions of that worldview worldwide. 
because it's based on where you live. So here in the Southwest, we have uh, certain relationships to plants and to animals, to water, and and you know those those are the focus that we have, you know, with regard to our skill base and, and knowledge base and also our ceremonial practices. And then, of course, the logic is not an either-or logic as it is in, in Western philosophy, but rather, uh, again, it's the notion of um, balance uh, interdependence, uh, an understanding that, and it's an ecological logic, okay? It's an ecological logic so that uh, that you you have an understanding that that what you do impacts everything else around you, and that uh, balanced relationship is what allows you to to move in a positive way uh, in that ecological web of relationship. Okay, so this idea of interdependence is very much a part of the indigenous worldview. And again, indigenous people all over the world practice this, but in their own particular kind of way, they reflect that practice, that understanding within their environments, okay? So that's the logic. Why it's becoming very important today, I think, is because it, it has that logic. It's about establishing and maintaining and sustaining a, a proper uh, relationship uh, with each other, with your, with your surroundings, with the plants, with the animals, with the whole earth. And so uh, indigenous traditions, wherever you find them in the world, are all predicated around this, this paradigm, this, this way of thinking about relationship. The Lakota used the phrase, we are all related, mitakuyasin, we are all related. Here in the Pueblos we use, we are all kernels in the same basket, or we use, we are all kernels on the same corn cob, you know, to to really emphasize that communal ecology interrelationship that we have and our relationship with corn, you know, which is our, our um, sacramental plant, if you want to call it that, but it's, it's, a, it's a, an honoring of our relationship to corn and corn is community, corn is life. And if you think of the subjects that would be on a typical public school curriculum in the United States, I'm thinking of, you know, mathematics, languages, social studies, you know, physical education. How do you reconcile those subjects with the approach that you've just described? That's the crux of the matter, right? I, I call it an intractable conflict. And it's a term that one of my graduate students uh, used and I, I adopted it because it, I think it really I think it really speaks to the, the, uh, the practicality of the issue is intractable conflict because uh, really indigenous education as I've described it is coming from a, uh, a different and, and an ancient worldview. It is the most ancient form of human thinking about relationality, you know, that we have all, all human groups, all cultural groups had this, this philosophy at one time and practiced it. You know, and, and then it began to change once we once we got into agriculture and agricultural systems. But uh, all all uh, tribes of men, let's put it that way, all tribes of men practiced this ecological philosophy. Uh, you know, for fifty thousand years. You know, before the present time, so that it's a, it's the most ancient, um, and it seems you know in its variations and the way in which. It, and, and using it as, a, as an adaptive tool, 
adapting it to different circumstances in different places, it has been the most sustainable philosophy that people have, have created. Uh, I think what's happening now, though, is that there's a real reckoning uh, with regard to uh, the Western, let's call it the Western curriculum, which you've just, uh, just described, which is subject matter oriented. Subject matter means also, you know, in the Western worldview, the object is the focus, the object. Uh, so everything is objectified, everything is material. You can't believe it unless you see it, you know, unless you, you those are the kinds of kinds of questions or kind, kinds of adages that you would see in a, in a Western curriculum. So uh, the subject matter curriculum is very much an objectified, object-focused curriculum. And what you'll find with Native uh, curriculums is that they're essentially ecological and they're also sustainable, by inherently sustainable in their orientation. And, and they're also uh, really about um, uh, holism. They're holistic, okay. So, um, so we're talking about a worldview that emphasizes the relationality, the relation, uh, the looking at the whole, not just the parts, but looking at the whole. The subject matter is parts oriented, okay. But uh, holistic education looks at the whole, looks at people in relationship to the whole, and asks the question, "How am I related to it?" And so that kind of worldview is is difficult to fit into a subject matter objectified worldview uh, as we practice in the West, you see. And that's what I call the intractable conflict. Yet we're beginning to see, you know, particularly those of us who are who are deeply invested in education and have done lots of scholarship, we're beginning to see that uh, the subject matter uh, orientation of the Western curriculum is, is inadequate. It doesn't teach for relationality. It doesn't teach about relationality. It doesn't teach about uh, the ecological you know, mandate, I think, that in, is inherently uh, the focus of sustainability. Uh, you have to learn those as specialized fields. You know, after you've gone through, what, maybe uh, 16 years of <laughs> of, uh, you know, formal, formal edu Western education. Uh, and certainly uh, for indigenous people, you know, you learn that the moment you can walk, the moment you're born, you begin, you're, 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 you're swimming essentially in a holistic uh, ecological mindset. Uh, traditionally, that was the way that you grew up in that system, you understood relationality in, in very deep ways. It became a part of one's expression of spirituality as well, uh, was uh, expressed in song and dance, in story, in ceremony, so that it was reinforced consistently uh, throughout a person's lifetime. And one uh, came forward, uh, you, you became a very different kind of human being. You become a very different kind of human being. You think differently, uh, you feel differently, uh, you focus on different things that uh, what one would call uh, life-centered, uh, uh, you have a life-centered focus. You, you focus on uh, finding ways to sustain your own life and sustain the life of others in community. So it's, uh, it's a very powerful, very powerful, and, and certainly 
uh, in the West, uh, holistic education, you know, has uh, begun to 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 really tap into that that ancient paradigm, if you will. Some aspects of ecological education are also beginning to do that, and also ecological philosophers, Western uh, ecological philosophers, are beginning to sound very indigenous, you know, in terms of their uh, expression of what they think is important, uh, and refer many times to indigenous ways of knowing. So there are changes afoot, significant changes afoot. Uh, also, you know, Western forms of education are designed for Western forms of economics. That's what I was going to ask you. And, and, how well does an indigenous education prepare people for the Western world as we know it? I think uh, what's happening is, uh, is a kind of... Um, integration, uh, because I, I know that uh, we do have a lot of Indigenous people who are entrepreneurs, you know, the, uh, especially in the arts. Uh, you know, one of the few areas that Native people were allowed to really express themselves was in the arts. And so you find a lot of Native artists that are also quite entrepreneurial, you know, in terms of their mindset, but also maintain a traditional viewpoint and traditional base. So I think that what is happening is that uh, we're beginning to integrate, you know, our, our view and understanding of economics into um, uh, into Western ways or Western wrappings, but still keeping uh, an indigenous core, you know, thinking uh, about relationality, about giving back to the community, about benefiting, you know, more than one's, just oneself, but benefiting a whole community with whatever economic enterprise one, one is uh, involved with. Uh, that has been already going on, largely speaking, you know, with our native artists and, and, and with uh, native art enterprises. Um, and I, I think we have a few entrepreneurs, native entrepreneurs that are looking at this now from uh, how native people will participate or should participate or are participating in uh, a green economy you know, where uh, the focus is on renewables, uh, renewable energy, um, food uh, security. Uh, we have a lot of native uh, people who are very uh, much involved with uh, uh, food security and also with, uh, with uh, traditional forms of gardening, traditional forms of agriculture, uh, and are exploring that as well. Are any of so, you writing about it? Not, not very many. The, I have one student that is writing about it, but she has, has yet to finish her dissertation. But um, uh, the, uh, Gary Nabhand would be a good person to read. He's not native, but he has written about native forms of agriculture as, as, I'm, as I'm relating it to you. Uh, so his name is Gary, Gary Nabhan, Nabhan and uh, quite famous uh, uh, horticultural uh, scientist uh, who has done um, a lot of this work. Uh, another uh, colleague, his name is Enrique Salomon, Enrique Salomon. And Enrique is indigenous. Uh, so he's written quite a bit about uh, indigenous uh, farming, indigenous agriculture, you know, as um, as a alternative, if you will, to, to Western views of farming and gardening. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is that it, it's, beginning to, it's beginning to emerge, but it's at really at its very seminal stages, you know, because 
that intractable conflict also is uh, is has to do with a power relationship. You know, the the American Indian education that I spoke about. You know, there's there's power invested in that. And in the indigenous education, the power is in the community, but communities usually don't have political power, you know, very much political power at all, you know, that, that one can, can really, uh, you know, express. So, so there's, there's power relationships that have to be, um, you know, have to be uh, addressed. And there's also economic, you know, relationships, uh, disparity, you know, where, uh, Traditional forms of education still occur in family and community, but they're they're not they're not resourced the same way that let's say uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs education is resourced, you know, for American Indian education. So uh, again, those those kinds of of um, disparities also uh, add to that intractable conflict kind of a scenario, you know, and and so I think that. Uh, uh, many Native people are working on this. I know that the generation of students I've been teaching, which are in their their early twenties, you know, are very very much vested in in changing, changing and transforming the system in, in ways that allow for Native people to more fully express themselves economically, uh, politically, and uh, and certainly uh, in terms of education as a whole. So. I, I have hope for that to happen, you know, um, as, as these young uh, educators, you know, come into being and begin to, to teach. And, and they're very much behind this movement, this community-based uh, school movement that uh, is emerging in uh, Indian country today. And, and you've talked about various aspects of it, like the community, the holistic nature of it, the ecological nature of it, and the relational, but also the sustainable nature of it. Can you say some more about, you know, your understanding of sustainability in education? From the standpoint of traditional forms of indigenous education, it was always about sustaining the people through time, in place through time and through generations. Uh, sustainability really deals with uh, nourishing, uh, you know, the, the life-giving foundations of any, of any uh, living system. And so for Native people, you know, that has been kind of the prime directive. Uh, for those tribes that still, you know, exist today, they have been able to find ways, you know, to, to sustain themselves in spite of colonization and in spite of, uh, you know, the political and, and social uh, situations that they have found themselves in. Tribes are getting stronger, applying their self-determination more and more. Uh, but yet we're still we're still faced with those basic intractable conflicts, you know, from time to time. So um, in, in terms of uh, indigenous education as a whole, you know, uh, I've written several books and I'm going to show them to you. Yeah, that is so, Look to the Mountain. Yeah, so this was my first book. And this is kind of the, it's, it's got a life of its own. It's, it's, a, um, it's an alternative education epistemology. Okay, and uh, in this is where I describe traditional forms of education uh, that were historically practiced by various tribes. And then I synthesize that into what I did at the Institute of American Indian Arts when I attempted to adapt uh, those ideas and perspective 
to a um, Western classroom curriculum in science, particularly in the life sciences. And so I talk about how I indigenized, if you will, the science curriculum at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I uh, had my first teaching position. And uh, so Look to the Mountain is, is uh, describing that indigenous epistemology that we've, you just asked me about. Uh, you know, I'm also a self-taught artist, and so uh, arts becomes a very important part of uh, expressing and also describing uh, some of these thoughts, these ideas that I've, I've just told you about. And so you can see this, uh, this uh, particular piece has uh, one of my paintings, and this is the first step uh, of uh, a traditional process of educating oneself, and it begins with asking asking for knowledge uh, from uh, all of those entities that give us life, that nourish us, that sustain us. And so that's the sustainable, you know, from the very beginning, uh, the question is a sustainable question. How do I sustain myself? How do I, how do I move forward in life, uh, you know, in this ecological relationship that uh, is important to indigenous people? And so I sort of uh, metaphorically represent it in that way. Uh, but also, you know, I did my dissertation on that uh, project, and this is called uh, uh, Igniting the Sparkle. And this is an indigenous science education model where I outline in a Western dissertation format how you actually go about doing this kind of work in the context of uh, a school. And uh, of course, those books then led to other books. Um, this one is called Native Science. And uh, Native Science uh, really explores this concept of Native Science. You know, what is Native Science? How do Native people uh, view and understand? Because all cultures have forms of science, you see. And so uh, I also get into the intractable conflict between Western science and Indigenous science in this book, but uh, again, you know, uh, using that idea of uh, what is native science. And these, this is the content of the curriculum that I created at the IAIA. So Igniting the Sparkle, this is the, uh, this is the, the content, the actual subject matter that I used in that. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, these days we're, we're doing a lot of work. Uh, I'm, I'm also, uh, you know, former athletes, so we, you know, indigenous uh, games, how to teach science, how to teach leadership, how to teach um, uh, spirituality, if you will, how to teach uh, health and physical well-being, you know, through the practice of native games. And so spirit of the game and the last two books, uh, and these have just come out last, uh, last year, well, there's three books. Uh, before that, uh, this also indigenous community, sustaining indigenous community in a 21st century world. And uh, all about that sustaining business. And then I, I did some work with my students where I, I uh, edited some of the stories that they themselves had uh, with regard to their work uh, along this line of, uh, of indigenous education. It's called Native Minds Rising. Yeah, Native Minds Rising. So, so what you'll see and what you're seeing today in Indigenous uh, education, not the American edu Indian education, but in the Indigenous education movement, 
is uh, a, a movement towards transformation. You know, understanding um, the history of traditional forms of education, its philosophy, uh, understanding an insight into what happened to that form of education. And then the new aspect is really how to take some of those ideas and reform them in a contemporary way uh, with uh, an eye to the future, you know, with regard to indigenous education. So there's a, there's a past, there's a present, and then there's a, a vision for the future. And so a lot of the students that I've worked with, doctoral students, who are now doctorates, uh, doctors themselves, you know, took on various aspects of that transformative vision and, uh, you know, created dissertations from it. So this, uh, this is some examples. This book is uh, are something, some of the personal journeys, the personal experiences that uh, some, of, uh, some of the other students wrote about, you know, with regard to their experience in Western education. Sacred uh, journeys. Their, their transformations and all of those kinds of things, you know. So, uh, so this is, uh, you know, some of the work that I've done along these lines that really I hope will give people some insights into this uh, indigenous education movement that is, uh, is underfoot. There's not much being written about it. I think probably this is probably the, the, more, the more recent uh, kinds of things that the students and the journeys. Yeah, have been writing about it, but uh, there's certainly a lot being practiced, you know, by a lot of uh, a lot of people. Um, and I have to say, uh, giving credit to Canada, Canada has been, uh, uh, or Canadian Aboriginal First Nations people have been um, really moving uh, in the forefront, you know, of this transformative Indigenous education movement. Uh, the Maoris also uh, in uh, New Zealand you know, have, have made major contributions, you know, to this kind of work uh, and have been leaders in it as well. What are the values that underpin Indigenous education? And I'm, I'm asking more from, uh, say, the sense of that a lot of people in Western schools and in Western settings generally, they find it difficult to find purpose for their lives or meaning in their lives. Yeah. What gives yeah. meaning in Indigenous education? What what is it that gives meaning to people's lives? I think, uh, you know, at, uh, in, in Western education, there's been, uh, beginning with Howard Gardner, you know, he was talking about multiple intelligences and all those kinds of things. And then uh, I think the last one that, that they really begin to codify was emotional intelligence. Uh, so emotional intelligence uh, has to do with the affective dimension of education. And the affective dimension of education is uh, the relational aspect of education. You know, uh, it, it's, it's where we derive meaning from what we are learning. We derive meaning from what we are teaching. We derive meaning from what we're doing in the world. And uh, a lot of ancient forms of education, you know, really took that, that affective dimension to heart. And, uh, and it's particularly apparent in indigenous forms of education where you essentially are, are creating a pathway, a journey uh, that respects individual differences, but yet at the same time moves people along uh, on that path uh, towards vision and meaning for their lives. 
And I think that for indigenous people, you know, the meaning was invested in their, uh, their personal, you know, development as a human being, their relationship to their family, their relationship to their community, and their relationship to the natural world. They felt that they were connected to and, uh, and could relate to and uh, could relate and understand the natural world in ways that, that brought back meaning to their own lives, meaning to, them, to their own soul, their own souls, if you will. And if you, t- if you really study indigenous forms of education, indigenous forms of education are actually kind of programmed to bring that out to bring that out, what uh, E.O. Wilson calls the biophilic instinct, uh, which is really the instinct that uh, he says is deeply embedded in our, in our biological organism, you know, to affiliate with other living things, to affiliate with life, and uh, is the basis of our, our communal psychology, communal social psychology. And uh, and education, you know, builds on that, you know, encourages that instinct or can, can encourage that instinct. But uh, it depends on, as we would call it in the, in the, in the craft curriculum <laughs> that you're a part of, you know. Uh, and so Indigenous people create a curriculum of affectivity, of, of connection, of sustaining uh, life, of sustaining family, sustaining community uh, in place. And that's what leads to the meaning that people derive from, uh, you know, this form of education. And so I think that that uh, there are many things that uh, that can be learned from indigenous education as um, almost as guideposts to, you know, go in this direction, go in this direction. I have to say, I have to champion holistic education, you know, uh, Montessori education, which I'm also my next Zoom is with Montessori teachers in which we are, uh, you know, we're exploring some of this same kind of question, you know, because it's, it's so important. But the, this idea that, that you can actually use education in some very amazing and positive ways to, to teach for this, this emergence of the bio, this emergence and, and mature development of the biophilic instinct. Uh, caring and empathy for each other, caring and empathy for the natural world, caring and empathy for your soul. And these are the things that are uh, being asked by many people, young and old, you know, with regard to the times that we are currently uh, living in, uh, addressing the COVID crisis and uh, climate change as a whole and many of the more uh, pronounced kinds of things that may be on the horizon. You know, uh, people are asking for you know, uh, what, what does this all mean? What, do, what is meaning, uh, you know, for, for me in my life? So forms of education that have this um, life-centeredness, this biophilic uh, sensibility. And I have to say, uh, there are many Western forms of education. They are, they're in the alternative. They're also in the margins, you know, that are teaching for this. Uh, and this has been going on for really quite some time. And all I can say is I want to encourage them to move forward, you know, to bring forward these forms of education. Uh, Again, they also face, you know, uh, alternative forms of education, holistic education faces a kind of um, intractable conflict 
within the Western system as well, because what impacts indigenous education, you know, for me also impacts holistic educators within the Western system of education, almost mirror images of each other in terms of uh, being marginalized, being underfunded, being uh, misunderstood, uh, being maligned, all of these kinds of things, you know, are also a part of many, uh, the experience of many holistic educators. Uh, but there are more of them in the world, actually. And, uh, and I have some encouragement. I feel that, uh, you know, as time goes by, they'll, they'll actually be uh, a huge uh, critical mass of indigenous educators, you know, to, to take my place, hopefully. <laughs> I wanted to show you a, pair, uh, a diagram that sort of, sort of uh, reflects, I think, uh, what we've been talking about. Uh, I'm able to see it. It's quite small. Yeah, when I was writing this book, I was trying to um, come up with a developmental cycle from an indigenous standpoint. And for Native people, uh, you know, the real intent of traditional forms of education was to find your, your personal spiritual center, what one would call the essence of your soul. And so, you know, one went through different stages in life different kinds of things were emphasized, you know, in early childhood, in young adulthood, in, or in youth, and then in young adulthood. And then when you became a mature individual in the community, you, you moved towards elderhood. But it was a developmental cycle in which that relationality was deepened, that understanding of, of, of interdependence uh, was deepened, that understanding of responsibility to your community was deepened. Uh, every step of the way. So that emotional affective dimension that we talk about in education that Dar Gardner talks about, uh, emotional intelligence, uh, was deepened every step of the way in the context of indigenous forms of education. And uh, ultimately the goal was to develop real human beings. <laughs> you know, uh, real mature human beings. And um, I'm reminded of another metaphor I used in this book, uh, Look to the Mountain, uh, where I'm looking for, uh, well, I, I set a scene. Uh, the scene is uh, in one of the uh, Kalmakaks. These are the colleges that were established by the, uh, the Aztecs, uh, the Nahuatl-speaking people in one of these colleges, let's say the Arts and Humanities College, the, the professor comes before the, uh, the students and very much like the Maoris and Hawaiians, uh, everything was chanted in uh, epic poetry in, in the context. Everything was written in epic poetry in the context of these schools. And so the professor asks the question, what is it to be a complete human being? Or what is it to be a... Um, a person of knowledge is the question that he asks his student and, and he chants it. You know, there's a chant, there's a poem associated with it. He chants that to his students. The students come back, you know, go back for a few days and, and mull over that question. And then they come up with a responsorial chant, you know, to that question. And uh, so when they come before the professor and he asks them what the response is, they chant to him, um, first one must 
to be a person of knowledge, first one, one must first find one's face, which is identity, our sense of who we are, our unique self. Then one must find one's heart, which is our affective dimension, you know, our, our sense of connection, our sense of affiliation, uh, that desire that burns within us to be, uh, you know, to be a human being. And then finally, uh, one must find one's foundation, which can be uh, metaphorically that on which you stand. It can be anything, really. It can be being an artist, being an engineer, being a scientist, being a teacher or uh, a certain philosophy uh, or certain understanding of life. Many kinds of things can be a foundation. So finding face, finding heart, finding foundation towards becoming complete as a man, as a woman, within the context of relationship, responsibility, respect, and resonance. First with oneself, and then with one's community, and then with one's uh, place, uh, the place you live, uh, then with one's uh, world, uh, the earth, and then finally uh, within the context of uh, your relationship to the cosmos. So we can imagine these, these concentric rings of relationship uh, with these respect, responsibility, uh, you know, resonance, uh, relationship. Um, and all of this is towards becoming complete as a man or as a woman. So, so the intent of indigenous education, according to this, this metaphor, uh, was to become complete, to become fully human. Uh, every word that Native people have for themselves as a people refers to human being. I am a human being, but it's in their language. So when they refer to themselves, like in among my people, we refer to ourselves as Toa. We are human beings, uh, the human being. So, so the, to become a complete, mature, developed human being was the intent of indigenous forms of education, traditionally and historically. You can go to any tribe, you'll find similar kinds of metaphors or stories, but if you unravel them and you get to the core, okay, so what are they, after, they're after developing the human, the full human being when in, in all their, their, their capacities. And, and to some extent that, you know, in holistic education, that, that hasn't changed. That, that is also the intent of holistic education. It is not the intent of modern Western education. In modern Western education, the intent is to produce a product the product that can uh, fit into uh, the economic system as it exists today. Uh, that's also what has gotten us into so much trouble, you know, in terms of global climate change, in terms of the, the issues that we have globally. It's, it's that kind of conditioning. It happened primarily through education. And that's why many of us who are educators are saying, we must change this, we must change this if we are really to survive uh, into the next generations. And, uh, and so that's what the indigenous message is. Of course, indigenous people are struggling to regain that and to gain the resemblance of that and, and reincorporate them in their own particular way, you know, into themselves as people. But in the broader sense, in the broader sense, 
uh, it, it is a project for everyone. And it's important to everyone that we begin to think along these lines. And I think so, that's why it's so important to speak to you today and to yeah. bring bring your, your, your message to our listeners. Yeah, so I would say just, you know, uh, I'm not sure about our time, but in, you know, getting close to our time, that um, that's the message that Indigenous education has. So if you study the histories of Indigenous education, I write about all of this, you know, uh, and, and you look at the bigger picture, the question is also a creative question. How do we recreate education? in a way that it brings back that, that, that indigenous sense of educating the whole person, uh, becoming a complete human being as a man, as a woman, and um, begin to really, really begin to focus on that. Now in the West, you know, I'm, ta I'm talking about indigenous education in, in indigenous context, but in the West you have holistic education and that has been around for, you know, since Western education uh, evolved, you know, and so it's there, it's there, but it's also like indigenous education, it's marginalized. It's viewed as not being important, not being with the times. Uh, I cannot say anymore that it is more with the times than ever before uh, in, in terms of, you know, educating for complete full human participation in the world. And that's where that ecological relationship, that ecological uh, sensibility, that biophilic sensibility begins to develop, take hold, and begins to express itself in our policies, in our politics, in our ways of relationship and community. It's, it's a very, very basic change um, that we have to begin to program for if, if, if we're going to, I think, survive. And, and I think that change is, is beginning to happen with fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, uh, one hopes that it is, you know, but there again, that intractable conflict, you know, it, if you can imagine this, kind yeah. of, you know, and it's going on everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And so we'll, we'll see how, how this, how this finally, how this story finally ends. It's all way. Professor Kehete, thank you so much for, uh, for, for taking this time to, to be with us. There's so many more questions I could have asked you, but I think there's a, you've given, uh, given us a lot to think about today. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Sean, for uh, inviting me to your program and uh, my best wishes to everyone. And, uh, you know, just in saying, you know, be with life, be healthy, be with life, you know, be positive. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll move forward together, you know, in, in some shape or form as we begin to transform ourselves into uh, more complete human beings. And that was Greg Cajete giving us an insight into what Western education can learn from Indigenous education, despite what he calls the intractable conflict between such education and the society in which we live. He is a professor of Native American Studies and Language, Literacy and Sociocultural Studies at the University of New Mexico. And many of the resources he mentioned are linked to the show notes for this episode at insighted.com. Remember, you can listen back to this podcast and 415 previous episodes by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on podcasts. My book about teaching, which was published by Routledge, is become the primary teacher everyone wants to have, and it is available now as an audiobook narrated by me. You can email me with comments and suggestions to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. 
Until the same time next week, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Thank you for listening. <laughs>